You're listening to Station F, the podcast. From the world's largest startup campus in Paris. Hey, welcome to the Station F podcast. I'm Cindy Yang, and today we'll be talking about investing in students with Jamie McFarlane, the founder and CEO of the Creator Fund. The Creator Fund is an early stage VC fund in Europe that has implemented a student-focused model. Essentially, they invest in student entrepreneurs with student investment partners. So we catch up with Jamie to learn more about how that actually works out and what are some trends that he's seeing in the student entrepreneurship landscape. Hi, Jamie. Welcome on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, pleasure to have you. So the Creator Fund started in 2018, but it's not actually the first time that you're investing in students. You've actually been investing in students for a lot longer. Tell us a bit more about how you first got started. Yeah, absolutely. So I, uh, I did my MBA uh, over at Stanford Business School. Um, and while I was there, um, I, I saw just how many of the world's best technology businesses was started by American students. So, you know, DoorDash, Google, Facebook, Warby Parker, Yahoo, Dell, you know, all dreamed up by students in dorm rooms and laboratories across America. Um, and while I was there, I realized that, that one of the reasons why that's happened is in America, there are these uh, VC funds that go out and specifically um, back and support and create a culture in which student entrepreneurship flourishes. And I, I'm from the UK, as I'm sure you can tell from my accent, and uh, went to university here and just fundamentally didn't understand why we don't have that same track record of brilliant businesses being built on European university campuses when we've got the same caliber uh, of universities. And so uh, on graduating Stanford, I, I moved back to the UK uh, and launched Creator Fund uh, to, to, to back companies uh, coming out of unis uh, in Europe uh, in the same way that they get that support in the US. Yeah, there are funds that invest in student projects, but not many do this exclusively. So how does the model at Creator Fund work? So our kind of our secret sauce, what we do differently, um, is we've got a brilliant team of 36 uh, student investors. And so the kind of belief is that it's very hard for a VC to, to rock up in Oxford or, or INSEAD or HSA or, or wherever it is for the day and say, you know, wh where's your most exciting startup? You know, what, what's the most exciting thing happening on campus? Um, the way to find interesting thing happening on university campuses uh, is to be on the ground, is to have students in the classroom, in the lab, uh, you know, seeing innovation all around them. Um, and so we train students. We put them through a 10-part training program. Um, we share the carried interest in the fund with them as well. Um, and they lead our fund on the ground. So at uh, 25 universities around the UK, three in Sweden, uh, we've got these teams uh, embedded in the ground, trained for how to look for startups, trained for how to evaluate them. And really, they're investing in their peers. You know, you might be a PhD in AI in Oxford, and you're investing in, you know, the, the, the most exciting AI startups being created on your course. Um, and, so, and that's how we're able to find uh, these, these exciting startups uh, right across university campuses. That's a very interesting model to source deals. Um, but how do you actually recruit the students? So that's a very involved process. So we spend about uh, three months every summer um, 
you know, mapping out universities and saying, you know, so taking the UK as an example, you know, where are the most exciting pockets of innovation? You know, where is the most exciting uh, startups or courses or, you know, where do we have real strength? And then we might say, okay, well, it's robotics at Edinburgh or life science in Cambridge or um, engineering in Bath. And then we will go out using LinkedIn, uh, using societies, using our previous uh, students from the year before and look for uh, students that fit that profile, that are kind of connected to uh, that type of activity on campus. And, you know, the other great thing is that as we've established our brand, as, you know, I, we're kind of, we're the only ones doing this at scale uh, across Europe. Um, we get fantastic inbound as well. People approach us and, and make their case for, for why we absolutely need to be on their course at their university. Um, and, and we're blessed to have really brilliant uh, applicants every summer. It's very hard to then make that decision about the final team of, uh, of 30 or 40. Do you call the students ambassadors or scouts? So neither. And we're really uh, thoughtful on this that, you know, I, I'm pretty bearish on scouting programs or, or, or ambassador programs, because typically, uh, at least the way ambassador programs works is, you know, you're kind of just sent out there and told to, to represent a company or, or get people on campuses to, um, to know what you're up to. We, we have student investment partners and student analysts. So people are remunerated for what they're doing. Um, they're matched with a senior mentor in industry. Um, they go through a very rigorous training program. We split uh, uh, our teams, uh, our, our, our team up into different regions, which meets every week. Um, people are involved with a portfolio. Uh, actually, our portfolio often hire our students to join full time. I just got a message today from one of my students looking for a flat in Edinburgh because he's going up to Edinburgh to, to, to join one of our companies. So we, we think really hard about how do we make sure it's a really good value exchange. We're meeting great startups, but our teams are, are having a really big experience out of it. And so we, we don't see it as a kind of ambassador program where the, the value exchange tends to go one way. Okay, so your student investment partners source the deals. Do they also do the due diligence or is it something that your team will do internally? Yeah, of course. So um, it's a mix. So we've got a core uh, full-time team of experienced investors. Um, we've got a, a senior investment committee as well, um, which I sit on and my colleagues sit on. And so it's a mix. So, you know, our view is that when you build a brilliant team of PhD students, um, you know, they're actually very well positioned to understand startups from a technical standpoint. You know, most VC funds don't have a PhD in AI or a PhD in biotech or a PhD in, um, in chemistry. So we use our, our students to do a lot of the technical due diligence and tell us, you know, the AI here is really interesting or um, this is why it works or can't work. And then, um, you know, some more of the kind of business analysis or, you know, some of the just expertise that you get from seeing a huge volume of startups is done by our core team. So it's, it's a mix of both. Oh, that's that's actually a super interesting model. Was it the same at Dormoon Fund or is this something that you've kind of retweaked? Yeah, so some, I mean, one of the major shifts that we've made uh, bringing this model to Europe um, is we've moved it pretty substantially towards PhDs. Um, because I think one of the kind of cultural differences between America and Europe is, you know, in America, it's much more prevalent for undergraduates to be working on startups. You know, that kind of Mark Zuckerberg in a dorm in his hoodie dreaming up Facebook or... Evan Spiegel in a, I don't know, frat house in, in Stanford. Whereas we, uh, we don't quite see that in the same way in Europe. Um, but what we do see here is superb technical founders at postgraduate level. Um, so, you know, really, you know, world-leading experts in 
you know, life science, for example, um, you know, building startups out of that expertise. And so uh, in America, it was probably 50-50 undergrad, postgrad, whereas in Europe, we feel that that needs to be more like 80-20, 90-10 for, for postgrads. That's an interesting comparison between the USA and Europe. So what do you look for in the companies when you meet the teams? Yeah, of course. So the, the kind of looking for, I mean, I kind of use uh, three kind of sporting metaphors for what we're kind of looking for. So, you know, the, the first one is, um, you know, like, like any, any VC, we're, we're looking for startups that can, uh, you know, hit a home run, right? We're, we're looking for, you know, an idea coming out of university that has the potential to be that you know, one startup out of Oxford or Edinburgh that year that will, will you know, generate 10x returns for the fund. And our view at university campuses is really that's most likely to be innovation-based, right? So, so all things being equal, um, you know, I don't think that the next, you know, grocery delivery app is likely to come from HSC, right? Like all things being equal, you know, that, that probably is going to be a founder coming out of Deliveroo or with, with, with industry expertise or whatever else it is. But there's every reason why the next quantum computing company or the next um, robotics company is going to come out of ETH or going to come out of Edinburgh, right? That, that kind of, when you're looking at where is innovation happening, where is, you know, deep technical expertise happening, that's where we feel university founders are uniquely well positioned to win. So when we're looking for that kind of baseball home run, um, you know, we, we do back uh, companies that aren't, you know, primarily innovation driven, but fundamentally, most cases, we're looking for, for, for a 10x return driven by, uh, you know, the, the, the fundamental technological innovation that's at the heart of this company. Secondly, the kind of second sport we think about is, is Formula One. And, and why we talk about that is, you know, the founder's ability to hit the next pit stop. You know, especially at student levels, I think students can be brilliant at pitching a big vision about how they're going to be Elon Musk or, 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 or whoever it is in, in five years time. But fundamentally, how are you going to get this out of the laboratory, off campus uh, to, to that next pit stop? How are you going to get your first 10 users, your first 50 users? How are you going to make sure that when Creator Fund invests, say, 150,000 euros, you're then going to be able to raise a million in, in 10 months time. So we think a little about, you know, not just a founder that's able to dream big and hit a home run, but also has that, you know, commercial, um, you know, short to medium term executional ability uh, to get to that next pit stop. And the last that we're looking for is, um, and I'm Scottish, so you have to kind of forgive a, a Scottish sporting metaphor, but it is curling. So I don't know if you know what curling is, but up in Scotland, you know, it's a sport that, you're on your hands and knees in the ice and you've got a broom and you're trying to get a disc into the central uh, bullseye uh, along the ice, right? So you, you throw a disc and then you scrape the ice and you try and get your, your disc to go into the center of the bullseye. And the reason why we talk about that is, you know, people that do curling, um, they're not doing it for the glamour. They're not doing it because they desperately want to be an athlete. You know, maybe you're a footballer because you desperately want to be an athlete. But for curling, you're doing that because you absolutely love the sport, right? And you're doing it for that one shot every four years to go and win a gold medal at the Winter Olympics. And th that's really what we want from our founders, right? We, we, I think especially, uh, you know, at, at university campuses, sometimes founders are doing it for the, for the glamour or the glitz, or it's increasingly a quite a cool thing to say, like, I've started the business or I'm being a founder. A and we very deliberately are not looking for that. We're looking for people that are obsessed with this problem, uh, obsessed with this company, obsessed with this sector, obsessed with curling, right? They're, they're doing this because they desperately want to solve this challenge and not just attracted to the overall glitz and 
glamour um, of startups in general. I really like your sports metaphors, actually. It kind of shows the competitive <laughs> nature that is required to, to sometimes build a company. Well, the thing about this job is, right, I give a lot of presentations on university campuses about, you know, startups and founders. So you've got to come up with kind of metaphors or new ways of explaining it. Otherwise, people kind of tune off. So I've, uh, that's how I came up with my three sports for what we're looking for. It shows a very, at least in my mind, there's a very clear image of what is required uh, to be funded by Creator <laughs> Fund. Um, so if I'm a if I'm a student entrepreneur um, and I'm looking for funding, what can Creator Fund bring me over another public or private investment entity? What advantage yeah, can it bring me? Yeah, absolutely. And so we, you know, we've built the fund with that question very squarely in mind, right? Because you know, if you're a great founder, you're coming out of a great university, you know, the, the money is commoditized, right? You, you can raise, um, you know, from, from, from different sources and, 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 and money is money. So our thing is how do we add, you know, the value that you specifically as a student founder need above our capital? So the first is talent, right? You know, one of the biggest challenges facing founders is how do you build out that core team and how do you maintain the same talent density, to, to borrow a Netflix, uh, Netflix uh, um, model, uh, how do you maintain that same talent density as you expand? So with Creator Fund, because we've got teams across 28 university campuses, we've got that talent uh, network ready to go. So all the time, we'll have a great founder from you know, one university saying, hey, I'm looking for my commercial hire, or I'm looking for a PhD in AI, or I'm looking for someone who can really build out our HR function in the, in the, in the, in the startup. And we're able to connect our founders into the talent they need. And I think you know, a majority of creator fund companies have hired either directly from our team of student investment partners, because they love working with them, or from our talent network across the, across the continent. And that's especially true when you're outside major hubs, right? So it's, it's tough to hire in Paris or London, but it's really tough to hire in Lyon uh, or Belfast. And so you know, how do we make sure that wherever the startup is, you know, you've got access to, to world-class talent. Creator Fund has that network. Um, secondly, through our partnership with Founders Factory, uh, our founders um, get full access to all their um, team of 70-plus operators. So often, you know, we might have, you know, for example, we've got this brilliant company called uh, Base Immune, who are vaccine specialists. But potentially, you know, in the early days, they need a little support on the commercial strategy. And we can tap them into that through uh, Founders Factory, but also through our core team as well. So we've got you know, they're, you know, 70 plus operators ready to help uh, our uh, student founders and, and fill in any gaps they have, especially when the founders are particularly technical. And then, and then lastly, we're, we're super involved in follow on fundraising, right? So helping our companies go from that first check into raising large amounts of capital, you know, 12 months after they raise from us. And, and the way that we've raised our fund, a lot of our LPs are actually GPs, so, so investors or CEOs of VC funds. And so they've invested in Creator Fund because they want to see the most exciting things happening across university campuses. And then we bring them the startups uh, that we've invested in to meet at the next round uh, for the founders to decide whether they want to take their money. Jamie, what does an ideal founding team look like to you? The, the sweet spot for us, right? I'll, I'll, I'll move away from sport. But the sweet spot for us is where it's a super technical founder that's also commercial. So we've got this brilliant founder that we invested in, first deal out of the new fund uh, back in January called Touch Lab. 
And so what that does is that is electronic skin for robots, giving machines the power of human touch. Seriously cool. I'm actually very excited because I'm going uh, to the Founders Forum event on Thursday, and he's trial. He's 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 going to be uh, demonstrating his uh, his technology. So we're going to be able to uh, try out the skin live, which I haven't done uh, done before. So essentially, what that means is, you know, you're a robot in a warehouse, and his skin allows the robot to feel a banana or an apple or a cucumber, recognize it through touch. And then that can sort automatically. So when you're doing your Tesco delivery, the robot can sort cucumbers from apples. It allows uh, robotic doctors to take pulse or temperature. Um, and when you go into space, you know machines need to be able to sense atmospheric conditions. So amazing technology. And you know the key question in the back of I'd imagine most people listening to this, their mind is, okay, so you know sounds really cool at scale. You know how do we get this into market? How do you commercialize this in the short term? So you know this is a great example of. We want them both to be massively technical. So he's, he's had this huge breakthrough. We did a huge amount of due diligence to understand that this works. But also, how is he fundamentally going to get it into market? And this founder, Zaki from Edinburgh, has demonstrated um, that he can get this into uh, factories. It's already being used by one of the UK's biggest retailers. Um, their machines are already kitted out with his uh, e-skin, and they're using it to sort orders. And he's now, uh, you know, in the process of doing uh, early pilots with. Um, hospitals as well to, to to demonstrate the medical use case. So we meet this founder where it's like, wow, I can really visualize how you are the kind of visionary that can build this company into something really special over ten years. But then also you've got that kind of commercial acumen to execute um, over the next six to twelve months. When a founder has that, you know, if, if it's a Venn diagram, when the founder's in the middle of that Venn diagram, that's the perfect sweet spot for me. Very interesting. Um, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here, but. What are some solutions that cater to the same problem, but perhaps don't use the same technology? Yeah, of course. I mean, so the primary alternative um, right now is machine vision, right? So the, the, if the, the question he's trying to solve is, how do you make uh, robotic devices intelligent about the world around them? So, you know, the number one way right now is machine vision, right? Training machines to be able to recognize an object uh, or an image uh, and know what that is, um, and why the e skin is so exciting is, firstly, um, you know, machine vision doesn't necessarily give you three sixty degrees, um, you know, ability to to sense conditions in all directions, right? It's whatever way that machine vision is, is is looking, but also in terms of if you think about what human beings use touch for and feel for, um, it's not just through recognition, right? It's also to understand weight, to understand pressure. And machine vision fundamentally um, is limited in its ability to do that. So if you're a, a robot picking up a banana to put it into a Tesco order, you know you need to know how firmly to grip it. You know what what's the pressure that you should grip that banana with before you put it in the basket. And skin, you know, skin is the biggest organ we have as human beings. Is is how we do that rather than vision. And so you know where we see this opportunity is, is as a complement to machine vision, but also filling in the gaps that um, we as humans use our our hands for our skin for not just our eyes amazing and i can also imagine all the new uh, delivery companies like doordash and we have in europe gorillas etc that are just super efficient at delivering groceries that would totally benefit from a technology like that exactly if they're listening to the uh, station f uh, podcast they need to i can i can <laughs> hook them reach up out. and give them a great deal on uh, electronic skin jamie at creatorfund.com <laughs> uh, jamie at thecreatorfund.com oh jamie at thecreatorfund.com sorry <laughs> exactly 
this is really interesting and I actually would like to see what what additional trends are you seeing? So what are some trends that you are most exciting about um, and also some companies maybe even that you want to share with us? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, uh, especially in the UK university ecosystem right now, um, you know, the, the world has, has seen the potential of what academic institutions uh, in the UK can produce with COVID, right? Like the, one of the, you know, first vaccines in the world uh, came out of Oxford University um, to, 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 to uh, vaccinate people against COVID. And we're seeing really interesting ancillary activity uh, in, the, um, in, the, in the vaccine space, in the, in the uh, life science space, around that. And so we backed a company recently called Base Immune. Okay. And what they do is they create um, variant proof vaccines. So what that means is, you know, viruses mutate, right? So you, you create a vaccine and um, as a virus changes, uh, you know, over a year, two years in the future, is that vaccine still able to prevent, uh, to, to protect people against future, future strains of the, of the virus? This team of PhDs out of Oxford um, use big data machine learning to be able to predict how a virus is going to mutate uh, and then develop vaccines in advance, specifically antigens, which is a component of a vaccine, to be able to respond, um, you know, uh, preemptively. And so, you know, we're big fans of this company. Unbelievable. Brazilian founder uh, and, and, and two English founders, two of whom are PhDs and postdocs in vaccines at the Jenner Institute in Oxford who are involved with the teams that developed the COVID vaccine. Third founder, which is really interesting for us, is a self-taught machine learning expert who didn't go to university. Um, you know, we're really excited about that team. So we, we led that deal in Base Immune a couple of months ago. Um, I think the other thing broadly that we're excited about and, and thinking really hard about is, you know, and, and this is why we're bullish on robotics, is innovation that takes human beings out of processes that used to be manual, right? We're, we're now in a world where people are less likely to go into the office, people are less able to touch. We're trying to minimize a concentration in human beings in one space. So how can technology uh, create safer and more efficient and more effective processes? So another deal that we're, um, or another company that we're really excited about and actually is now raising their next round, we, we, uh, we invested in them last year, is a company called Recycleye, and you, it's actually Machine Vision, which we were talking about a second ago, Machine Vision for the recycling industry. And so in rubbish plants, historically, you would have somebody on the conveyor belt picking out what can be salvaged, what has to be thrown away. These guys have built one of the biggest libraries of rubbish in the world and then built Machine Vision that can recognize rubbish, right? They can recognize, oh, that's a crushed Coke can, that's a discolored... Uh, you know, a cereal box, this should be saved, this shouldn't be. And actually, a Belgian founder, very active in France, um, working with the uh, recycling companies in France. I think actually their team retreat, this is how I knew I love these founders, their team retreat, they go to rubbish dumps in France and the team have to manually pick rubbish to know what the manual process they are uh, that they're replacing, which I thought that's a really, you know, a show of a founder committed to the, that's a curling founder. Um, um, but, uh, you know, that is an example of, you know, is an example of like Touch Lab. How do you uh, automate or, or use technology to take humans out of the equation? 
these are fascinating companies. Um, now, because vaccines are kind of the hottest topic at the moment, I'm really curious to learn more about the vaccine company. So how does the technology actually work and how do they manage to build variant proof vaccines? Of course. So the way uh, base immune works um, is, and forgive me if you've got uh, virologists on the, on the audience, because I'm probably going to not quite be uh, explaining it to their, to their level. But essentially, a, a vaccine has two components. It has um, an antigen and it has an adjuvant. So an antigen is the part of the virus that goes into the vaccine. So it's, you know, when, when you take a vaccine, it's got a little bit of the virus in it. Um, to, to build up an immunity in your body. And the adjuvant is the, is the delivery mechanism. It's, it's where the, um, it's, it's what actually, you know, houses the um, virus and, and, and makes sure that it's uh, safe and able to go into your body. And so um, historically, a lot of the innovation in the vaccine space has been around adjuvants, not around antigens. And so this company, Base Immune, is focusing on the antigen part. And the question they're asking is, which part of the virus, because you don't take the whole virus, you typically take certain parts of the virus, right? It's kind of a, a, a cocktail uh, a, a, a of the virus that's going in um, to make sure that it's, it's optimized to develop uh, immunity in the patient in the most effective way. What parts of the virus do you take? What parts of it do you mix together uh, to go into that antigen to, to, to replicate the virus in the, in the vaccine? And so the insight from base immune is that, you know, big data um, you know, really thinking in a smart way using machine learning about um, the parts of the virus that you should take, but also predicting how that virus is going to change um, can make the most effective antigen. And so that's what these guys are doing. Um, and it's not just for COVID. I mean, they're doing it for malaria. Um, the team between them have developed 16 vaccines. So in their, in their previous uh, lives, um, they're doing it for HPV. So I think they've got one of the very few HPV vaccines uh, currently um, in trial, uh, chikungunya as well. So it's it's any vaccine. They're thinking about how to use data to build the most effective antigen or the most effective replication of the virus. That sounds incredible, and that also sounds like a kind of company that needs a lot of investment. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely right. So we, you know, we led their seed round. Uh, we invested alongside a great fund from Germany, a great fund from um, Finland, and some UK investors as well. And, um, you know, I think a big part of our role will be making sure that they then go and raise a really successful round uh, sooner rather than later to, to, to fund the clinical trials that they need to do. And um, there's obviously a huge, you know, uh, uh, imminency um, for them to succeed and not just from an investment standpoint, but from a humanity standpoint, you know, we need the most effective vaccines possible and, and um, need to make sure they're being funded. Yeah, it sounds also, Jamie, like you only invest in impact companies. No, that's a really interesting question, and people ask me that uh, a lot. Um, so, no, we don't. I mean, we invest. Um, you know, we, we invest really. We're focused on deep tech, um, AI, life science. Again, that point about where is university innovation most likely to win? So that's the focus of what we're investing in. Um, I'd say the majority of our companies have a positive impact uh, on the world. Um, that's not all that we do, but I think by virtue of the demographic of founder that we're going again, going up, uh, looking for, you know, students, uh, typically people in their mid 
twenties, late twenties, early thirties, PhDs, they tend to have, they tend to want to shape and improve the world. Um, so, and we're thrilled about that. So, you know, a lot of the companies that we're investing in do have that positive societal impact, um, but that's not exclusively what we do. I, I'm not going <laughs> to, it would be a bit odd now to list the, it's not like we've kind of got, you know, arms dealers and, and cigarettes, but there are companies in the portfolio where, uh, you know, they're probably not quite as societally uh, focused, um, but still having positive impact in other ways. All right, Jamie. So looking at the bigger picture of the Creator Fund, your model sounds really perfect. Um, you have these students that are on campus, they're integrated into their campus culture, they know everyone, um, and they're out there, they're keeping an eye out for the best deals. Um, I'm curious to know, what do you think are some limits um, to your model? And if you've maybe identified a few that you've already solved or not? I mean, one, you know, one challenge with the model is how do you make sure it's not too dispersed and diffuse? Like, you know, we've got students across 28 university campuses, 36 students. How do we make sure that they are, you know, motivated, proud, getting a huge amount of the experience out of the experience that they love being part of creator fun. And I, I think a lot about that um, because, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, like we do not want this to be an ambassador program. I, I, we want this to be, you are treated like a partner in this fund and deeply invested in its success and, 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 you know, formative role in finding and backing great companies and, and maybe going on and working on the, with those companies afterwards. So that's why, you know, we do not expand without consideration. It's why we really make sure that we put a lot of value into what our students get out of the program. Um, it's why we have a huge amount of like pastoral support and, and team time. Um, you know, I've got a great colleague, Dana, who's very involved in, in, in thinking a lot about how do we make sure that there's a really strong culture in the organization. Because the danger is, you know, most VC funds, right, are... You know, there might be a core investment team of like five, six people. You know, once, once you scale that to, you know, with, the, with our full-time team, let's say 40, how do you make sure that that model is still tight and, and um, you know, a, a cohesive and supportive group? Um, I mean, the other, the other major, and we haven't touched upon it, the other major uh, issue or, 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 or challenge that we come up against is university IP. So we're primarily investing in PhD students, undergraduates, and master students who own their own IP. That said, we also do invest in early stage academics. And so, you know, that can be a challenge when the university owns a significant percentage of the equity and equally as challenging, they need to approve a spin out, right? So they might take six months or a year to approve for an academic to spin out their company and start a business. Um, it's something that I've got very strong views on. I think it's one of the biggest things that we could do in Europe to better stimulate entrepreneurship would be to change that process and make it much easier to, to spin out a company. But it's, it's a challenge that we come up against. And our view is, you know, we really are only investing in companies where the university owns a small uh, or, or zero uh, equity stake. Um, and we really try and work with and support our founders in making sure that it's a quick process. Because if there's one thing that, that's uh, going to undermine on, uh, innovation is if it takes you know a year to see light of day. I'm not super familiar with the the way that IPs work in universities. So is it usually the case that universities will own most of the IP, or 
not necessarily where it depends on the school. It's completely different if you're a student or a professor. So if you're a student, and I'm generalizing, almost all the time, you own all your own IP. And that's, again, why we focus on especially PhD students. But they typically own all their own IP. There are some scenarios when they don't, like, for example, if they worked closely with their professor on the project, they might stray into the path of some of that IP going to the university, but typically they do. And all nine of the companies that we've done so far are student-run and they own their own IP. If it's a professor, the university has a, 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 a stake typically. Interestingly, there are two countries in Europe where that's not the case, uh, Sweden and Italy. And there's all sorts of studies that show that Sweden and Italy, or Sweden in particular, is really effective at university entrepreneurship because the professors own all their own IP. Um, but typically in France and Germany, UK, um, the university will have a stake. And the challenge is it varies on a university by university basis. So every university will have their own policy. So some are really easy to work with. Um, others are harder. So the three next deals that we're doing are all... Uh, early stage academics, so young professors, but still professors. So the university owns a small stake, but not as much as they would if the professor had been there for like 20, 30 years. Um, and so it's, that, that's the challenge that the policy changes uh, on every campus. It sounds like you're calling for a change. Absolute, there, there absolutely needs to be a change. It is, in my view, one of the biggest things Europe could do um, to stimulate entrepreneurship. Uh, on, on well, in general, is is you know make it easier for professors who are some of the cleverest, most innovative, um, you know, sitting on brilliant IP and technical expertise. Make it easier for them to spin companies out, but also make sure that they are incentivized and have enough of the company that it's worth their while. Because if not, if the university is taking fifty, sixty percent or whatever then the professor's not going to want to start the business in the first point. Um, so, so that is something that we, we, at Creative Fund we strongly think needs to change. Again, because we're primarily doing uh, student ventures, it's not a problem most of the time, but it's something we think a lot about when it comes to academics. And again, you know, studying at Stanford, it's five times easier there. You know, the university takes a much smaller stake, and there's that whole culture of, you know, we get it, you need to move fast, you need to be able to spin this out, there shouldn't be too much approval process. It's much more set up for that uh, success. So is this something that you need to negotiate on a country level or a case-by-case school level, university level? Um, Typically, it's a university-by-university level. They all set their own policy. Um, I I think there should be a national policy. Um, I think it would make sense to coordinate that across the country and say, look, you know, this is what um, universities should be taking in terms of IP when it's a professor startup. Um, you know, and I made a brilliant trip to Stockholm uh, last year, just before COVID, actually. It was like my last time leaving the country just before the, everyone into lockdown. And, you know, I went to KTH and, and SSE, and you see these Swedish universities, um, and they really, really benefit from the fact that the professors own all their own IP. I, I don't think it's possible in a country like the UK to go to 0%, but I think the university should always be taking kind of less than 10% or, you know, 5% or so. And, you know, the most successful universities at spinning out companies, like, say, Imperial, are doing that, right? They're taking lower percentages. The, comp- the, com- the universities that historically have had less success typically take higher percentages. Amazing. Yeah. This is 
I think this is something that most people don't know. So you taught me something really, really interesting. It's really, it's, it's really important. And, you know, again, if you, if you look across Europe, right, and say, what institutions does Europe have that are unambiguously best in the world? Like, what do we do that the Chinese or the Americans or the Indians, you know, we are definitely as good as them, if not better than them? I think, I'd, you know, you'd struggle to come up with a better example than university education, right? Europe's universities are world-leading, you know, top in their class. And so if we're thinking about, like, how do we grow the next generation of brilliant technology companies, unicorns across Europe, you know, surely the answer to that is, is our university campuses, right? We've got these centers of innovation that have been, like, innovating since, you know, the 1300s and 1200s, if you're Oxford and Cambridge or, um, you know, universities in Spain or France. How do we make sure that they continue at the forefront of, of innovation? And so I think the policies that we set up to stimulate that, incentivize that, make it easy to fund, and then remunerate the people that are driving that change is, is absolutely key. And so I think right now a roadblock to that is, is the way that we treat university IP in this, in this, uh, in this continent and, and something that we should really think about changing. Amazing. And from all these years of working with uh, students, I just want to end with this one last question. Um, what's a piece of advice that you would share to a student entrepreneur that's building at the moment in France, in the UK or elsewhere? Um, so my, my number one piece of advice would be, and it's, it's, uh, it's like all advice, right? It's kind of, um, it's from learned, you know, learned mistakes or learned experience yourself. But, you know, so I, I went to Oxford uh, and I graduated in 2009. So I'm kind of uh, aging myself. But, um, you know, when I graduated, uh, I remember, you know, they, they used to go to this like little uh, house in the, in, the, in the suburbs of Oxford. It was like the career center. And they used to have these like A4 printouts of like jobs you could do. And I remember it literally was like there was a legal pile, there was a banking pile and there was a management consulting pile. And that was like pretty much it, right? And I just remember like sitting in front of those three piles and being like, okay, well, which of these am I suited for, right? Like, I'm probably not clever enough to be a medical doctor. You know, is my, is my numeracy good enough for investment banking or should it be consulting or, or, or law? And it's, I think the good news is that it's changed a fair amount. Like I think, you know, uh, in 2021, that's the, the, there's probably five or six piles. But I still think that the default option that we tell people in Europe is go and be a banker, go and be a lawyer, go become a management consultant, do a kind of, you know, well-paid, um, you know, relatively safe, prestigious career path. And I just think that's such a shame, right? If, if we've got unbelievable talent coming out of French universities and UK universities, and that talent has the potential to, you know, do anything, right? What do you do with this concentration of really able people? What are we telling our brightest and, 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 and most ambitious people to go and do? If, if, we're, in, if we're directing them towards, you know, the, the same career paths, that's just limiting potential. And so, you know, if, if, when I have kids or if I was going back in time in 2009, I would just be, you know, this is at 21, you can't really make a mistake, right? You know, if you spend two years doing something that doesn't work out, you know, you can always go back and, 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 and take those options that were on the table two years ago, right? You, you've got this opportunity where you're young and full of energy and the world's your oyster. And if you ever want to try something, ever want to build something or be employee number two or three 
um, or just trial and, and take risk. This is the best time to do it. No mortgage, well, I, I presume, no mortgage, unlikely to have kids, unlikely to be married. This is your shot at really giving it a go. Uh, and my, my number one piece of advice is, is to do it and, and take that risk now because it's the best time in your life to, 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 to take that opportunity. And I absolutely love working with the, the founders that we do who are all in that stage of their lives and, and, and taking that shot. Um, and it's what I would advise to, uh, to any students listening to this, uh, staring at those three piles. Nothing wrong, nothing wrong with my, my brother's a lawyer and, uh, you know, nothing wrong with those three paths. But if you do have a, a, a yearning somewhere uh, inside you thinking, I want to give a shot to entrepreneurship, like at university and graduating university is the time to do it. All right, Jamie, if I'm a student and I'm looking to, de- I'm debating between law and banking, I've definitely, I would definitely have been inspired by your words. Now, if I'm not in the UK, how do I get in? How do I reach out to you? Like, how do I get investment from the Creator Fund, or is it something that you haven't developed yet? Well, it's um, it will be coming very soon. So right now, our current fund's a UK fund um, that is going to be changing in the uh, coming months. Um, I'm always, you know, and, and the other thing is we also have a very good VC network, right? So um, actually, talk was talking to a company out of Station F. Uh, a few weeks ago, and um, you know, even when even when uh, companies aren't uh, you know right fit for us, always happy to connect them into other investors. So, um, in six months' time, I think uh, it will be coming to create a fund for investment. Um, right now, still very happy to have the conversation, and we've got a very broad network of VCs. Uh, and when it's a good fit, always happy to to, to forward that on. And for anyone listening uh, in your UK audience, um, please do email me or my team of. Um, of, of student investors at uh, right across the country. We'd absolutely love to talk to you. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Jamie. Likewise, really enjoy the uh, conversation. Thank you so much for having me on. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Station F podcast. If you liked this episode, make sure to give us many, many stars. And if you'd like to suggest a topic or a guest, please don't hesitate to reach out to us on Twitter or at cindy at stationf.co. We're available on all your usual podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and Deezer. So make sure to follow us to not miss any of our upcoming episodes. See you soon.